Welcome to the Revelation Project Podcast. I'm Monica Rogers. And I'm Andrea Willits. Together, we're disrupting the trance of unworthiness and guiding women to reveal the truth of who we are. We say that life is a revelation project, and what gets revealed gets healed. I'm honored to introduce you to a very special guest today. Mark Green is the founder of Remaking Manhood. I'll never forget the day I saw a post written by him on Facebook on the topic of the man box culture. The resonance his words had in my soul was palpable. Listen in today as we identify and explore some of the challenges posed by our dominant culture of manhood and how Mark is working to help solve them. Mark Green is the co-author of the relational book for parenting, along with his partner, Sally Ha Bava. He is also the author of the little hashtag Me Too book for men and Remaking Manhood, Stories from the Front Lines of Change. Mark also writes and speaks on men's issues for the Good Men Project, the Shriver Report, the New York Times, the BBC, Huffington Post, and the Salon. You can also find him at remakingmanhood.com. So welcome, Mark. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, we're we're really excited that you're here. Um, and we love that you will be bringing your own personal experience here and inside your revelation project, we like to call it, and your perspective on the masculine, the feminine, and this, this other piece that I can really hear... Um, is near and dear to you through some of the little bit of reading I've done around children, generation that that we're going to be, that we are actively now, but also raising them in a way that's different from the status quo in the past that has not necessarily been serving us as a people. Well, it's a fascinating conversation uh, when you when we look at parenting now. For the last twenty to thirty years, there's been all this sort of cultural language around what's getting created. And I remember when the term helicopter parents was just constantly being discussed, and it was viewed as this um, this sort of catastrophic outcome when parents are simply too hands on. Uh, I wonder to this day exactly what is being created by helicopter parenting. But I will tell you this, we have a generation of kids uh, dating back quite a ways, actually, maybe two generations, but the millennial population is sort of the poster child for helicopter parenting. And what we ended up with is, um, is a generation of kids who, uh, who are demanding that we relate to them, that we be in conversation with them. And they are asking this in their personal and professional relationships. And frankly, if I had to put my money on one capacity that I think might save us as a species, it would be the, the, the birth of this idea that we owe each other a conversation. So it's yeah. fascinating uh, parenting and the idea of, of being relational, uh, that is, centering relationships as part of how we view our roles in personal and professional relationships. You know, yes, I know I'm the parent, you're the child. I know I'm the boss, you're the employee, whatever that stuff is. Sure. Those roles are important, but when we step out of those roles and center relationships, what we get is a very different level of engagement by all parties. Yeah. So I, I love that. I very curious about how, for you personally in in your life have been affected a system right though in how society has related to you and in your own family in your upbringing how how has that impacted you and what is personal about this you know, this passionate calling that you have in making a difference, creating something different in the way that we interact and relate to one another? Well, I, uh, you know, your focus on the article about when, when men turn, I'm sorry, into a weapon. Yeah. Um, it, 
I, I was struck, immediately struck by the introduction moment where you said, Mark wrote this article about Me Too, you know, and about, well, he wrote this article about when men use I'm sorry as a weapon. And I, and I cheerfully said, good, great to be here. And it's so interesting that our lives are uh, this public-facing effort to create connection and create positive energy and all that. And our stories often uh, carry great challenge and difficulty and trauma and all the things that, um, that our culture uh, infuses the process of growing up with. Our culture, I talk about man box culture a lot. I talk about the rules for being a man. Um, and these rules begin to get asserted uh, when boys are two, three, four years old. Um, Judy Chu wrote a book called When Boys Become Boys, and she, yeah. she di- has powerful research there. Well, in my life, personally, it was violence. It, it was violence directed at me violence or the threat of violence that I was constantly having to track. So imagine um, a tightrope walker, right? Who's attempting to walk a balanced uh, performance across a tightrope, except for most boys. And certainly in my experience of growing up, people are shooting BB guns at him the whole time. So you have this off balance struggle to do something which arguably is an act of grace and skill that we learn over time, but we're constantly under assault while we're trying to do it. That is grow our, our personal expression in the world, grow our sense of agency and identity. But when you're threat tracking constantly, and for me, that was boys getting physically violent, uh, in the, in the gym locker, my brother in my home, all that process of sort of coming to, to painfully understand that if you cannot inflict violence adequately to defend yourself, then you will have violence inflicted on you. That's the, that's the equation for boys and men, certainly in my generation. Yeah. When you grow up that way, you, you end up feeling completely inept completely unable to operate in relationship to other people because you never get the time to grow and understand what a positive relationship looks like. Instead, you're, you're just tracking threats. Yeah. So in you navigating as a young boy, you know, this, this high alert around, you know, the potential to be hurt. It, if, it, I'm, I'm hearing that it affects your relationships. And I'm, I'm curious, at what age can you remember that you began to consider that there was a way that it could be different for you? How did you, how did you cope with the violence and then decide there was a different way of caring for yourself? For me, uh, and I know people are thinking, what, 16, 18, 20, 22, 25? For me, I'd say 45 was when I started to understand that that I didn't need Mm -hmm. to uh, continue to try to perform a version of masculinity that wasn't working for me. And I would suggest to you that, that that's early for some men. I, I um, yeah, Mark. This is Monica. I I was gonna say I think that is really um, common. I, I mean, I I think you're right yeah, about that. It is it's fascinating. It I totally think is. I think you're absolutely right that it doesn't really start to come into play until men are in their mid forties or or later. Honestly, for me, it was the birth of my son, and the fact that that I I've always been a, a freelancer, a writer, a designer, whatnot. So I was at home with him all the time, and I, I became one of the primary caregivers for him. And, uh, and in that relationship, I began to understand through – I mean, basically, when, when a man becomes a, a primary parent or even a fully engaged parent, uh, you know, maybe still working, but fully engaged parent to their child, they break most of the rules of the man box in that moment. The man man box says, don't express your emotions. Well, we do that with children. We can't help but do it. We giggle, we laugh, we smile. We hold them close. We we embrace our children. Uh, And we know this not, this isn't automatic for for fathers, but when you spend enough time with your child that you have to change their diaper, that you have to comfort them while they're hurt, 
you suddenly, it's almost like the universe tricks you into connection because there is no other way to engage uh, an infant, right? And as they grow older, they climb into your lap, they, they reach for you. It, it takes a tough, hard-hearted human being to not reach back. So for me, parenting began to teach me things about myself that men indeed can be caregivers, that men indeed can express emotionally, that men can be tender and loving, and that men can hold uncertainty, that, that we don't know the answer for an infant. So we're going to have to let this infant teach us. All of these things led for me to begin to transform my life, but it was only the beginning of the process. And, it, and how men can find a path to a more authentic expression of who they are is different for each of us, but the world has to throw something pretty big into your life for, for most men to be uh, challenged by their circumstances and to change, to shift, to create difference. There are, there are things that get thrown into our lives, and I can list those for you, but, uh, but most of them are catastrophic. In my case, I was lucky. It was beautiful. It's a beautiful thing that got thrown in my way. Yeah, and, and what I'm hearing really is what your son provoked in you was the muscle of nurture. And, the and men are, be men are yeah. beautifully gifted at this. Yes. But we're never invited to do it, and in fact, we're shamed for having those urges when they do arise when, when we're in man box culture. So, so Mark, do do me a favor and just define or reveal what, what you consider man box culture and give us kind of your definition of it just so that our, our, our audience kind of sure. like tune in. Yeah. Man box culture was a is a concept that was originally created by a guy named Paul Kibble in uh, working with the Oakland men's project in the 1980s. What he did is he went around to schools and he asked boys, you know, how would you define being a man? And what they came back universally, didn't matter what, what part of the Oakland area and later what part of the country that these questions were asked, didn't matter class, culture, ethnicity. They all came back with some fairly straightforward rules. And the rules were don't show your emotions, always make a lot of money, always get the girls, care about sports and sports related activities and always be dominant, always have the last word, always be the leader. Now, all of these definitions for being a man, he would he would ask these boys, they would all list this stuff. He'd draw a box and write those inside. And then he would say to them, and what do you get called when you don't do this well? And they would all say, you get called a girl, you get called gay, you get called a fag. So it was either denigration of through the denigration of the feminine or the denigration of LGBTQ people that boys are then policed to stay inside the box. So if a boy cries, if a boy begins to exhibit too much need for affection from other boys, uh, wants that emotional connection or that communication, we have this drumbeat of uh, microaggressions and policing that are based on the denigration of the feminine because we wrongly gender connection, empathy, caregiving, all those things as being the, in the domain of the feminine which is actually not correct. These are universal human capacities. So in the moment that we police these out of our sons and we, and the language man box language may have been created 40 years ago, but these ways of talking go back many more generations. The minute we do this with our sons, we strip them of the ability to form relationships. We shut down the trial and error process, which over years teaches them to connect in nuanced ways across difference and in doing it, we denigrate women to the point where boys, instead of getting the connection they need, are forced to do this dominance-based version of masculinity, which is based fundamentally on the idea that women are less. That's man box culture. Right. And, and there you have it, right, in terms of um, really coming, circling back around to what you're doing here and what I love your community. You know, the title of your community is as remaking manhood. And, and so I'd mm -hmm. love... I'd love you to kind of talk to that for a minute and just reveal in your, just in your life, what, what sparked that passion in you to remake manhood and what's your vision for that? Sure. Well, I, you know, I began writing, uh, for the good men project, uh, over a decade ago. And when I entered that writing space, I was one of the dad bloggers, right? The stay at home dad bloggers. And we were, we were a movement of men who were invisible, right? We were the, the guys who were taking care of our kids. And once we, be, I mean, the first time any of that became visible was uh, a decade or more before that when 
Michael Keaton made a movie called Mr. Mom, and the entire movie is about how inept he is, how, what a bad parent he is. Ha ha, mm-hmm. so funny. And as this stay-at-home dad movement was born out of the economic collapses in the U.S., and some men went into that work because their wives were better positioned to earn for the family. Some went into it because they aspired to it, and some went into it because they lost their jobs. But as this population grew, advertisers and other commenters began to pick up that same Mr. Mom narrative. Look, dad's an idiot. He dropped his kid in the toilet, whatever. So we began pushing back against that and saying, wait a minute, you know, this is this is an unacceptable narrative about men. We are engaged parents. And here's our story. I wrote about that for a while. My son began to grow up and I said, well, wait a minute. What's the larger narrative here? What what's the world going to what's this culture we live in going to begin telling him about being a boy and being a man? And so I began to migrate across into this larger cultural conversation about masculinity. And what I discovered there was a catastrophic level of disconnection for boys and men. We in America, uh, the AARP says that one in three Americans age 45 and older are uh, lonely, are isolated. The uh, Cigna did a study last year uh, where one out of every two Americans is either sometimes or always alone. And the health impact alone of that is equivalent to smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Wow. So we're talking about deep levels of social isolation, which lead to increased levels of heart disease, um, neurodegenerative diseases, diabetes, cancer, all of it. Cancer metastasizes faster in lonely people. And we are a culture of gated community, isolated, lonely men, and by extension, the women in their lives. So although women have a better network of connection and tend to benefit from that in terms of processing the challenges in their lives, men are taught not to share what, what's, what they're struggling with. Men are taught to present confidence all the time. And because of this, uh, men end up aging out of what the man box expects of them, right? Yeah. It's, um, the man, it's, it's, go ahead. Well, I, it's just what's coming up for me is so interesting is – vulnerability right so so men are trained not to dare show their vulnerability and and Mm -hmm. the irony in what you're saying is and it's it's outrageous really to think about the that it's then making them vulnerable to illness or all of us to 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 illness right in this isolation isolation, yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. and and that we can teach encourage and nurture the vulnerability for boys as as well as girls what that could mean um not just for the individual but also for the collective what's important to understand is that this view of men as strong confident providers we we train men to be this way and then we train girls to admire this in men yeah so so Girls and women have internalized this man box version of masculinity. And whenever, uh, you know, so so it's going to require a combined effort for men and women together to face their own fears about what it means when a man begins to express emotionally and express his worries, his concerns. But it is only passing through that gateway of anxiety that we can get to the other side where men and women equally are processing their daily challenges in life and growing more connected community because it is in community, a community of relationships that men live longer, that they are resourced to process the challenges they face. All of the things that we, that we would normally do as human beings in, in pre-industrial, uh, in, in, in the pre-industrial Western world got, got broken down and cut off and eliminated. So men are lonely. And what I was going to say about man box culture is it is a young man's game. So when men begin to age out and they, their bodies can't perform the sports in the perfect way or they, God forbid, um, lose their job or their one-liners aren't working anymore with the ladies, all these ridiculous caricatures of masculinity, we begin to fail at it. And if we have been cut off from forming relationships, growing community, connecting across difference, which is what the man box does to us, then all we have left is the expression of anger. That's the only emotion that men are universally allowed to express. And men who have never self-reflected and never done the work to figure out who they are 
are unable to do it at this crisis moment as they begin to age out of the man box. And so they start blaming. They blame uh, immigrants. They blame people of color. They blame, God forbid, feminists. They blame other people. And they become this angry, irate voting block that creates many of the electoral outcomes that we're seeing right now. Yeah. It's all tied in. It's all tied in. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. It's fascinating to kind of hear you connect those dots and and to kind of reveal those connections um, enables us as, you know, women, I think, again, there's there's kind of this parallel um, journey that, yeah. that we have, which is very similar. And something that came up for me, Mark, that, that I, I was sitting here thinking as I'm listening to you, like that we romance this, that we're taught as women or girls, like romance is such a trance. Like I've come to mm. really see it as such an issue. Um, this romanticizing of what these gender roles are and what they're all about and mm-hmm. how from a very, very early age, women or girls are taught to admire these qualities in men and to seek mm-hmm. um, outside of themselves for, you know, for like uh, identity through their men. You know, like mm-hmm. actually yes. what we encounter a lot in our world are women who, if they're not a mother or a wife, that they somehow mm-hmm. don't have any value. And, it, and it's fascinating. Like, so one of the other things that, of course, we're looking at as we're listening to you, and of course, for, for our audience, is kind of looking at this interconnectivity and busting this myth that... Of, of not only the man box culture, but what I would also call kind of the trance of unworthiness in women. Yeah. That's beautiful language. Yeah. And, and I want to, I want to loop that into, um, other piece that you alluded to and what Monica just said, which is so women being trained, right. In, in, mm-hmm. in society and community and family to really, want to be connected to and allured by that masculinity of what seems romantic and strong and mm-hmm. right like where we get to to be cared for and there's this strength and there's this like perfect formula of woman getting to be the the princess so to speak and and man getting to be the the prince and the rescuer, okay? Sure. And that when what you're doing is shining a light on this different way of being where men actually get to be vulnerable and tender, all of these things that, quote-unquote, don't look manly, that it has an impact on how women may perceive the men that are daring to be more vulnerable, not necessarily in the manly cultural sense of what's attractive and sexy. They may not be find themselves as comfortable with it. Right. It's well, they made the deal. We all made the deal. Because we made the deal. And so I think this is a really important piece as we are trying to bust myths, break through this, this way of being, right? These really, they're metaphor gains of... This comes, down to, this comes down to such an important singular reality, which is whether it is a girl growing up or a boy growing up, are we growing up in a context in which we get to do the trial and error work of learning... To, to, to express in authentic, genuine ways our voice in the world. Yeah. And I would say to you that neither girls nor boys are allowed to do that culturally. So if we do not do it in our role as parents, if we don't encourage that struggle and that difficulty over time, uh, it will not take place. And so instead, we make these deals. 
women only have to give away one thing in order to enter into a classic man box relationship, and that is their agency. All they have to do is give up their right to make choices. Mm. Instead, they simply align themselves with the choices that they've been taught are, are offered. They, and, and ultimately, they also um, give away their – because they were raised without this trial and error effort to, to grow their authentic voice, they, they play the gender script for women. Men play the gender script for men, and they end up married for 40 years, and they don't know each other. And, and ultimately, this, this is what leads to the deep sense of alienation that a lot of people have to live with. I would suggest that I, we wrote the, the relational book for parenting, Saliha and I. We wrote the book as the cure for what our culture does in terms of d- disconnecting our boys and girls. Yeah. And it is, it is made up of a series of relational ideas, relational practices, considering context, listening with curiosity, uh, holding curiosity, staying playful. Uh, there's a range of simple, clear ways in which we can help our children stay engaged in that trial and error process of learning. And, and when they reach the tipping point, and you've, I, I know you guys have met girls and boys that are like this, when they, have, when they reach the tipping point of their own authentic voices, they never go back. No, they never go yeah. back. Yeah, yeah. I'd love for you to share, since, since you, you've brought this in, and I, you, know, you have shared a bit about your son, how you in your relationship with your son and how you're raising him that impact on him and what you experienced with him on the street one day yeah 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 Yeah, would would you share that story mark sure we have tried to stay in conversation with our son about a range of issues as they arose as he grew he's now 14 Uh, But starting when he was, you know, five or six years old, we began one of the things, one of the things that we began to talk to him about was how he doesn't have to automatically respond when someone else expresses an emotion. So if dad gets upset, you don't have to get upset. If dad is sad, you don't have to be sad. If mom is upset, you don't have to get, get defensive or hide your feelings. And we call this not collapsing into the emotions of others. Mm. Just hold your space. You can acknowledge what they're feeling. You can do all this stuff. Now, one might assume that kids who are six or seven years old aren't aren't old enough to to understand this, aren't old enough to hold these possibilities. But I would suggest to you that kids are tracking very, very specific aspects of how people interact. And if we turn around to them and say, hey, I saw you noticing that, what was happening for you there? You can begin in age-appropriate ways to introduce them to these ideas. So a few years later, I'm walking down the street with, uh, with my partner, Saliha, and, and Gus. He's about nine years old. And uh, we, we come up to the curb. I remember the intersection to this day here in New York City. I was just – I was full of turmoil, and I just turned to the two of them, and I said, I don't know what's going on with me today, but I am in a lousy mood. I'm just in a terrible mood. And they looked at me, and the light was red, and we were waiting to cross. And Gus smiled, and he said, Dad, you go ahead and have that bad mood if you need to, but Saliha and I, we're not getting on that train. <laughs> and I looked back at him, and I said, good, good. I, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, don't get on that train. I don't, I'm not so fond of it myself right now. <laughs> the light changes, and we start crossing the street, right? And so he and Saliha are continuing to, to chat and whatever. And this is what happened in that moment. By the time I put my foot on the curb across the street, I had realized that that I was now free. I was free to express emotionally without the fear that it would trigger a bunch of responses in the people around me that I would be responsible for. Mm. Instead, I could simply express how I was feeling. They made space for that. They didn't collapse into it or begin to mirror it back to me. And by the time I was a half a block down the street, that mood was already lightening because I realized that feeling crappy and not telling anybody is the key to feeling crappy for longer. So it was a wonderful moment for all of us because it gave me the freedom to express, to move through things. And this is how we relate as human beings. It's in these back and forth, these, these, the, the, the literally minute by minute, sentence by sentence conversations is how we process emotionally. 
And the freedom to do that was really powerful. Yeah. And Mark, I I love that story. I know. I still get, I get chills and this is the second or third time I'd heard it. And you know, what, what's coming up for me is that that was, that was a huge revelation in that moment. And because what, because what opened up, right, was all of this access, suddenly this expansion that you, until you had that actual moment where you lifted the veil, right, off of like, what was done or how things were done when you were a child, right? Because there's a stark difference, like put that put that scenario back into your own childhood and and help me understand then what was different for you in your childhood. Oh, well, I think a lot of us have grown up and still are growing up in families where if one of the people in a powerful role begins to express irritation or anger, everyone orients around that and hides until the storm blows over. Oh, right? yeah. That's what, that's what we're expected to do. We're all expected to orient toward it and freeze. And you hear a lot about this uh, it, when you talk about uh, adult children of alcoholics and all the people who are trying to process what it's like to be in what's essentially a tyrannical power structure or, or relationship. Um, and it's only when we are able to hold that bit of, of you know, curiosity, stand apart from the expression that we then grant that person the right to have it to go. It's okay. If you're sad, it's okay. If you're grieving, it's okay. If you're mad, let's just take a minute and let you have that. I'm not going to take that away from you by saying, Oh, well, whenever you do that, I've got to do this. So it's, it, it is in, I can't say enough about the term relational. And that's the title of our children's book, the relational book for parenting, because it centers on this moment by moment, back and forth, what gets created in the relating is so powerful. And much, much of what we do isn't, Hey, if you do this, it'll fix something. No, it's, if you do this, it'll create this, which will create that, which will create this, this back and forth is so powerful and beautiful. And this is what a relationship is. Yeah. And there's also a presence, right. To be, to being relational that, Mm -hmm. that I want to kind of surface here because we can't, we can't not, how do I want to say this? It's like, you can't not be present and also be be in in that act of being relational with somebody. There's it's actually required that you're present in that moment. And what I'm hearing, Mark, kind of under the surface here, and, and you can push back if I'm if I'm kind of not right on it, that there was raising your son, you know, and and actually relating to him in a way that was much more hands-on, much more intimate, much more, you were so much more present or allowed to be present or allowing yourself to be present as a parent that Mm -hmm. you were willing, it it became so important to you to choose his well-being in, in terms of like how you then got pushed way out of your comfort zone to actually start to make change happen in your own life and start to be your own kind of catalyst for that, for that awareness. Is that correct? That is correct. And I think we will make change for our children that we will not make for ourselves. But because it is relational change, it cannot help but change us. Yeah. But we will go to efforts for our children we will do things on behalf of our children that we would not, it's not a lack of courage, it's just a lack of, of presence around the need for it. But I, I'll give you another quick example of a relational capacity and, and what it can create. This idea that, that Gus was impacted by our, uh, our, uh, the conversation we were having with him, another important part of this is that we, we, did, we do something called listening with curiosity which works with couple relationships, it works in professional relationships, and it works with kids in slightly different ways. But the idea that we, that we are here to teach and tell our kids or our employees or even our partners is unhelpful if you want them to grow their own capacities and frames in the world. So when, I, when, when we teach and tell our kids, hey, don't step off the curb, there's a car coming, you have to do that work with kids. But if we stay in that mode all the time, Let's say our kid comes and says, really upset on the playground, really freaking out. And we, you know, for dads especially, but for, for moms too, often 
when we see our children in distress, we, we wouldn't admit it to ourselves, but we tend to teach and tell in that moment because we want to end the distress that their emotional expression is causing for us. Exactly. So we say, yeah. who did who did what? Okay, little Billy and Bobby, you need to go over and tell them this and do that and whatever. Okay, now it's fixed, so don't show me this anymore. Versus we listen, we take that moment and we say, uh, okay, look, I understand you're upset. Let's just hang in there for a minute. Tell me what happened. And then on the way home, you may bring it up again and say, so what do you think was going on for him? What was going on for you? What did you see? And you begin the process of asking questions and holding curiosity. And instead of listening for what you think the answer needs to be, you listen. And your children begin to talk about things in a range of ways. And you hear little threads of ideas and you say, hey, I'm curious about that. What was that part over there? Tell me a little more about that. And when you do this in your adult relationship, we stay married to someone for 20 years. We think we know them. We think we know everything they're going to say. If you have a slightly challenging conversation, you're already pretty sure what your partner is going to respond back to. And yeah. when we do that, in, in any conversation, there's 10 threads. When we look for the one that confirms what we believe, then that's where the conversation goes. But if we listen for new growth, hey, you said something over there. I'm really interested in that. What was that? They go, oh, yeah, well, I was kind of thinking about that, too. Suddenly you find new ways of addressing or communicating around things. This is all about listening with curiosity, listening not for what confirms what we believe, but instead for new growth and new ideas. And in this way, we come to realize that this person we've been married to for 20 years or this child has been in our life for 10 isn't the same person. They're not even the same person they were yesterday. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if we keep going back to confirm our beliefs they're going to move off over the hill and down the road and be gone. And we're still going to be looking at the point where they were when we married them. So listening with curiosity is, is a very key way to discover the person you're with and who they are becoming. And in the back and forth, we, our children, while we are teaching them who to become, they are teaching us who to become. It's yeah. this beautiful back and forth. Yeah, I love that. I, I and I, I, I agree. I think curiosity is uh, anecdotal for so much breakdown and assumption and misunderstanding. Um, well, and it also brings up this this kind of growth mentality of like instead of like this kind of what you're t what you're referring to as this teach and tell that that. And so much of this, I want to kind of, again, surface this piece, is modeled to us, right? right. From a very early age, this whole teach and tell. And so when we kind of mm -hmm. adopt the role, right, mm -hmm. when, we, when we're somebody who has not been related to, we then become mm -hmm. somebody who can't relate to others. And so mm -hmm. at some point, and I guess this is where, you know, we start to want to turn toward what what are the suggestions or the solutions or the revelations that you've come to adopt that are that we can kind of give to our listeners to say look if you start doing these three things or noticing x that that can start to turn this around in your own life right because we can sit here and talk about we all identify as issues and we're all nodding our heads mm -hmm. like, yes, we can all relate to what we're talking about and we want to change it. We want to mm -hmm. be the change makers. I think the three of us, you know, in this particular conversation are very well aware of the issues. So that's where I'd mm -hmm. love to kind of turn this conversation uh, sure. next is just like start revealing how we can start being a catalyst for change in our own families, in our own lives. And those of us that have children, maybe there's one suggestion and those of us that don't, there's others. Yeah. Right. You, and, and just to, to, to add to that, Mark, we'd love for you to speak on what that is, what that action as far as these mm -hmm. tools. And you talk about bridges, you know, like creating a bridge to help uh, find our way in this uh, relational concept, right? To connect, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to be present to one another, to communicate, to close that gap that, uh, where there's a huge disconnect. So what would you say are some practices or tools that you think are most effective? 
Um, we have a we have something in our relational book for parenting called the relational wheel, and it has six capacities on it that that are all essentially ways in which we can be more human in our connection. And these things are are deeply deeply empowering because they take away they take away that feeling of being stuck. When we feel stuck in our relationships with our partner, coworker, child, it is because we have reached an impasse in terms of how to bring some play and some discovery and some, you know, what do we say about toddlers? When a toddler is doing something you don't want them to do, you don't block them. You offer them a distraction. You offer them two choices, both of which you want them. You create this way in and around the block. So for us on the relational wheel, at the very top, we have we have the idea of stay playful. And what we mean by playful at its core is whatever ideas you're holding, hold them more lightly. Mm-hmm. It's okay to have a belief system, to have a way of going forward, but hold those ideas lightly because if, if, you, if you grip them too firmly, they will drive every interaction. Uh, we talk about listening with curiosity, which I already shared a little bit about. We talk about reframing our stories. We all carry stories about the other people in our lives. We carry stories about ourselves. These stories, if we're not conscious of them, if we don't mindfully consider what they are and what they lead us to believe and how they lead us to act, they can unconsciously drive a lot of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm, I'm just, my story may be, oh, I'm just not very good at talking to my kids. Well, what if your story, you change, shift that story, you don't, right. you don't completely disavow it, but you shift it to, I'm learning how to speak to my kids better. I'm getting better at it. Yeah. I, I, I have more to learn, but I'm learning. And there's um, responsibility have, in that, right? There's taking some uh-huh. responsibility instead of just being complacent and letting yourself off the hook. Yeah, every story we carry can either, we live the stories we tell. We literally live them. And if you believe you're, you're always going to struggle with your kids, Brothers and sisters, you're gonna. So you you have a responsibility to not let that story. Sometimes we just collapse into those stories. They're so yes. warm and cuddly, and they let us off the yeah. hook, and we don't have to make change. So nice to be a failure. Let's do that. Which brings me back to my, you know, why why men use when men use I'm sorry as a weapon. I'm not good enough. I'm really sorry. I'm up. I I don't live up to standards. But isn't that the story of my life? And therefore, don't don't bring it to me anymore because I already know it. Yeah, there's you know, so a we weapon. Have this, mm-hmm. Yeah, we have this thing that we that we 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 hold our stories too dearly, and we don't do the hard work of creating better reframes and better narratives that we hold ourselves accountable for. Then, um, another of the the capacities is consider context. We we go into things and we don't take a moment at the be- if we take a moment at the beginning of every interaction to acknowledge the effort of the other person, which is part of context. Look, you, I saw that thing you did the other day. That was so great. Thank you for that. If we also don't consider context, what kind of day are they having? What kind of day am I having? Well, how's my energy right now? Considering context is so crucial because we, are, we don't operate in a vacuum. We are all the result of the day we had at the office and the challenges we're having or the victories we just had or the joy we're feeling. All of these things are context. And you can teach little kids to consider context. Mm. How, do you, how do you think Billy, how do you think they talk about this at Billy's house? What do you mm. think that means? Little kids will begin to say, well, you know, I don't know. I think it may be this or that. Um, we have and asked there's questions. that relating, Mark, right? It's like, it's like teaching oh, yeah. them to relate. Yeah. To, to what imagine. might be going on yeah. in somebody else's yes. world. I love yes. that. Yes. To imagine the possibility that a whole nother world. And so what happens between you and the other little boy on the playground is informed by many other things. Yeah. It's not that he's just a bad kid or you're just a victim or whatever that was, or that you got a little too forceful. We, this is context, right? So context yeah. helps us understand how we arrived in a moment. We talk about asking questions as central, so crucial when we're telling someone versus asking. And with like this relational space, imagine just a a globe between you and the person. This is what you're both creating collectively. When we are with a small child and we teach and tell, we're filling that relational space with our ideas. And they're happy to have them. They're like, oh, that's interesting. But when we ask a simple question, what do you think was going on at Billy's house? How do you think they talk about that? And then we fall silent. That relational space is empty, oh, and that child it. may take some time, but that child begins to say, hmm, well, I'm just going to put one of my ideas in there. I'll put another one in. 
oh, look, there's room for my ideas. I'm going to start putting some ideas in there. And in that moment, they go from being a passive consumer to an active producer of relational ideas. Such a powerful moment. Yeah, it really Um, promotes their self-worth, doesn't it? That activates that. And we know that when a child or, or a partner or a coworker comes to a realization themselves, it is so much more powerful than we try to share it with them. So, so and the last thing on our wheel is ask, uh, is hold uncertain. This idea that we have to know the answer and we have <laughs> to figure things out with our partners. With it. Instead, we can say, you know what? I don't know the answer. Oh, God, if we could teach men to say that, if men could just be free to say, good Lord, I don't know. I have no idea what the answer is here. Let's figure it out together. If we could begin to let uncertainty, hold uncertainty longer, because when we jump to the solution, when we come into a meeting or into a child relationship with the answer, we are precluding a whole nother universe of possible solutions, which could be much better because they emerge from what we collectively create instead of a single person's frame. And so this idea of holding uncertainty is the last thing men ever learn to do because it is the antithesis of what we're taught. Be certain. Be yeah. certain all the time. Yeah. Oh, I just, I absolutely love that so much. And it's, I have two um, young men uh, for sons right now. You know, they, they're they in their manhood, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. And I have to say that what I'm my mantra to them of late more and more is it's okay to be in the, I don't know. It's rich Mm -hmm. there. Actually it's loaded Mm -hmm. with possibility versus having to know and have the certainty. And it's interesting because my older son deals with anxiety and he said, you know, he always says, but mom, I get, I I feel so anxious when I don't know. And I Mm. said, well, maybe, maybe, It's more about getting to be in the lens, as we call it in in the Revelation Project, right? It's a different perspective with it that I I don't know is opportunity. It's discovery. It's having someone else help you collaborate, right? It's connection Mm -hmm. and loaded with possibility. So it's it's all about what we make up about that circumstance of knowing versus I don't know, right? Changing right. And, the and meaning of that. There's anticipation in not knowing. And I think a long time ago, we started teaching our sons that that anticipation and excitement is anxiety. What if oh. that's not what it is all the time? Right. What if we've conflated eight different forms of energy into, oh, that's anxiety. Don't ever feel anxiety. When in fact, this is anticipation, excitement, surprise, not knowing all these things are are then we taught our sons that that's anxiety. And in fact, what we really need to teach them is, hey, what if you name it something different? What if you you consider that as something generative and powerful? That's where the edge of change is. And that's where you're going to discover stuff. And by the way, saying I don't know to someone is a powerful way to form a relationship because it invites them to share what they think. Imagine that. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, when we invite people to share their observations, this is at the heart of every diversity and inclusion idea out there. This is why Deloitte says that inclusive work groups and corporations are more generative, are more creative, come up with more ideas because people aren't bringing the answer to those meetings. They aren't bringing the cultural answer, the racial answer, the ethnic answer. They aren't bringing any of that stuff. They're saying what emerges when we all collaborate. And this is the anxiety that men have been taught to avoid this, this not knowing emergent collaborative energy. And it is where relationships lie. It's where connection lies. It's where our community lies is in that emergent, not knowing space. Yeah. It's, it's, and it brings me to this question, Mark, which is what what do you think the most helpful one or two things that that we can do as as people who are now listening to this, who are more aware, right, because of this mm-hmm. podcast, mm-hmm. what can we do to foster and and help you remake manhood? 
wow, that's not the question I expected. Um, and honestly, this process that I'm going through where I'm both talking about the challenges boys and men face and the solutions in terms of intentional relational practices with our kids and our partners, those are the two halves of the puzzle, right? Mm-hmm. And my social media outreach, my, my connections on the internet, I'm, I'm on Twitter, I'm on all these places. I just am trying to get more people into that conversation. And anybody, if you go to facebook.com slash remaking manhood, you will see uh, that community, which is going back and forth. People are talking, people are, are saying, oh yeah, okay, I get this. That is, that's the only way forward. I build this thing brick by brick, day by day. And maybe someday, you know, Oprah Winfrey will say, you should read this guy's book, but I'm not betting on that. I'm betting on the fact that, that we will build it brick by brick in a conversation daily, which includes this one. Right. Well, let me, let me also, as a mom, bring this home, right? Let me bring this in more personally. I live in a home with, you know, I have a daughter, a young son who's uh, just turned 14, mm. and I actually live with Superman. <laughs> and he, and what I want to say about my, the love of my life is that he is um, more in touch, I think, with his feminine side sometimes than I am. And mm. he's somebody that is so capable. Do you know what I mean? As mm. a man, he really... And he he has that beautiful mix that I honestly have come to love and admire so much. And there's and so there's also kind of this woman in me that still is um, wanting to support him and my son because I I do see some um, you know almost like some. D- disconnect sometimes between how those two relate to each because mm-hmm. my my partner is not his biological father he's a he stepped in as a stepdad and he's mm-hmm. a wonderful stepdad and so as a woman in the world i'm just wondering like raising or living with men what would you say kind of the the thing the number one thing that i could do to help foster more relation between all of us would be with men with men in the house. What would what would you say to that? Well, I I do believe that women have women can model the idea that connection and communication and the back and forth of conversation is uh, is is a natural and appropriate domain for men. Mm-hmm. That um, and that the expression of what they are going through is not only healthy. But it's a gift to the rest of us to help us all work together, right? We, women and men, you know, you've got to meet men where they are. Some men have been locked down for so long, it's a very frightening thing for them to step out. But it sounds to me like this Superman in your home has already reached the tipping point that I talked about. And once you get to the tipping point, the idea that you're supposed to hide your emotions and be a provider and whatever, they laugh at that stuff. They're like, are you kidding me? And we see this stuff playing out in the, in the demographic of the millennials. Millennials are dramatically different in terms of, you know, they, they simply don't care about sexuality or gender. Yeah. They're not marking that stuff as different. They're saying we're all part of that. And so we're seeing a powerful change already, which gives me great hope. But we have to meet men and boys where they are, but we also have to make sure that they understand that it is in conversation that we solve problems, that yeah. we express and connect in that way. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I should have been more clear, too, that the Superman um, part of it is that he's going to hear this, and so he knows that that <laughs> is a mask that he still wears because he knows. We all wear it. We yeah, all wear yeah, it. Right? Like we this. all wear it. And, and I'm so, wearing it right now. Yeah, and so what I heard you say, though, which is so helpful and great, is that as the female in the house or as the as the mom, right, as the as wife, even though I'm not married, that that actually relating back and forth and the natural and appropriate behavior for all of us. Yeah. 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 And what's and really if you needed. Can, and we have to go in, we have to strip ourselves of the need to teach and tell. We have to we have to hold deep uncertainty. 
Because when we try to speak to, to others, sometimes they're not ready to talk. They're, they're angry. They're silent. They're all these things. So we have to hold this space for them. We have to create this container of acceptance. And then we all know that there's moments when that conversation can happen. And when the moment is right, we have to set things down. We have to clear our minds. We have to set aside the need to be right. And we have to have the conversations, right? Awesome. It's so hard. It's so hard not to want to run in with that stuff at the wrong moment. And I want to say very clearly that I am half the time, I'm terrible at everything I'm telling you to do. I am terrible at it. <laughs> well, what I'm I, like, so oh what I'm also God, hearing just, is that it yeah. can be messy, but well, that it's worth yeah. it, right? And, and, and Mark, one last thing, because here's, here's the other thing before we wrap up that I just want to touch mm-hmm. on. And that is, there's something's coming up for me around forgiveness. You know, the childhood that you described, it, it, I'm making up over here that you had to experience some level of forgiveness or healing around how you were raised in order mm. to kind of pivot and be willing to remake manhood in the way that you're suggesting. And I just wanted you to talk about that for a minute. Do you know who I had to forgive? Care to guess? Yourself. You got it. We struggle as men to forgive ourselves for being victims, for being bullied and beaten and isolated and laughed at and forced to take on this caricature of being a human. We have to forgive ourselves for that. And it's hard. It's hard to not fall into that victim mindset, to not stay in that place of being wounded, to not. And I'll tell you, you know, I'm a Mankind Project brother, and that article that you that you refer to yeah. came out of the work that I do with them. But I will tell you this. We love, as men, we love to default to anger and victimhood as a way to back people off and, and let us stay in that place where we don't do our work as men. And I would invite any man out there to... Uh, reach out to an organization like the Mankind Project or any men's group that's doing the work and do this difficult moment of looking at yourself and looking internal to your own struggle to forgive yourself. I mean, I have to forgive myself for missing out on 45 years of connection. And I still grieve deeply about that. Why Mm. didn't I learn sooner? What, Mm. why did I have to come this far? I missed out on a lifetime of being someone different, of making something different in the world. And all men carry this sense of, of loss, mm-hmm. uh, I think, because when you lose connection, you lose, you lose a piece of your life. So uh, for those of you who are going, not me, I'm like, good, go on, brother, live, connect. But for those of us who are carrying that grief, it's not too late to let go of it. No, it's not. And you know what, Mark, what I want to say to that, too, is those, those are what I call disguised gifts too, because those experiences are what, what forced you to become who you're becoming, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and, and I'm, and I'm for one, I'm grateful, you know, as an ally, uh, you know, as, as a woman in the world that you are holding this conversation in this space for men, for boys, for, for partnership between the masculine and the feminine, you know, and really wanting to, you know, be that voice and that conversation that is a wake up and really a catalyst for all of us to start thinking and and discoursing about this differently. And I'll leave you with this. I begun to find in the last few years of my of my life, the same playful, exuberant joy that I remember as a little boy. And I know I missed it for 40 years, but but it's back now in this way in my life. And for all the frailty and confusion and bad days I have and all of that, that's what I want back. I want the joy of playful connection with other human beings. And if I can get there before my time is done, then Mm. I will have considered the journey to to be complete. And that's my goal. I love that. I just, I want to share this quote that you had in the uh, relational book for parenting because it's so beautiful and I think it's a great way to to end this um, podcast with you Mark and um, what you said in the book when we bridge and coordinate across our differences we create 
a more resilient web of relationships within the families and communities that are central to our collective well-being. I mm. love that. Yeah. I yeah. love that. It, it, it's been such a pleasure, Mark, to, to learn more about you, uh, to reveal more about remaking manhood and just, you know, just the, the having the opportunity to share with you today. I just really want to thank you and acknowledge you for the work you're doing. Yeah. And well, I, I, I want to just add to that to say that we in the collective we are all needed. All these voices are so needed in the system that is truly in transformation at this time in our lives. Mm -hmm. And it's, it is the hope. It is exciting is as messy and scary and disturbing as it can seem sometimes what we're talking about and the work that you're doing and we're doing collectively, it is making a difference. It is. Yeah. And Andrea, Monica, thank you for having me. I'm, it was it was an honor to be a part of this conversation. And I, I do think the tipping point is happening both for individuals and, and for us collectively. It's it's happening. Yeah, it is. It I can agree more. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Mark. Yeah. And we'll All right. be sure to post with resources for our audience so that they can can read more about you and uh, and more to be revealed. Thanks, Mark. Take care. All right. Take care month into our online monthly membership, Remembering Sisterhood. Join us there for soul diving, live coaching, special guests, journal prompts, tips for living your most authentic life, and so much more. Simply go to our website, jointherevelation.com and click on our membership link using the code podcast in the checkout. We can't wait to welcome you there. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit us at jointherevelation.com and be sure to download our free gift, subscribe to our mailing list, or leave us a review on iTunes. We thank you for your generous listening. And as always, more to be revealed.